Good afternoon, everybody, and thanks for joining. Today, we're going to continue our study of Igeret HaTeshuvah, the Alter Rebbe's incredible magnum opus on religious return and the notion of the rejuvenation of our souls, of our neshama, something that we aptly titled Soul Rehab. We're learning the fourth chapter of this amazing treatise on tshuva, and I'd like to reiterate some of the points we made prior as sort of an introduction into what we're going to learn today. We're learning about the neshama. Why? Why are we learning? This is about teshuva. This is about return. This is about what the world will often call, albeit it's a bit of a misnomer, repentance. So why are we talking about the soul? That's not the subject of, of today's class. Well, actually it is. It is because teshuva represents the notion of the soul's rehabilitation. And the only way it's possible to understand the notion of a soul rehabilitated, in essence, a soul regaining its fervor, its innocence, its passion, its profundity, its purity, the only way for us to understand that is, well, to understand what the neshama was prior to sin. This will help us appreciate, or at least somewhat understand the damage or impact of inappropriate behavior, sins of omission and commission, and then we can understand how and why tshuva affects its rehabilitation. It will also help us to appreciate and understand the notion of the return that we allude to, the return we speak of. You're returning, you're returning to your essence because the journey down to earth as, or life as we know it, for a soul to inhabit a terrestrial body of, and, and live a corporeal life is an incredible descent for the neshama. Tshuva provides some solace, some respite. Tshuva enables the neshama to regain some of its former glory, its spiritual magnificence. But again, if we don't understand what the neshama is, if we don't understand what the soul is, we'll never be able to properly understand or appreciate tshuva. In our previous lessons, we've established that there are two levels of tshuva. Tshuva tato, as the Zohar refers to it, the lower level of tshuva, and tshuva law, a higher level of tshuva. We also established that tshuva law, the higher level of spiritual return, as the Zohar terms it, is not just for extraordinary people of very sacred individuals, but rather it's something that applies to all of us, even those of us who may have fallen to moral or spiritual lows. We've also talked about the notion that in order to understand tshuva, we need to have a better grasp of this concept called karet. Karet is translated as spiritual excision or the soul being cut off. Can a soul really be cut off? What does it mean when we say that somebody earns karet as a result of their sins? And if you're cut off, 
can you come back to life? Can you actually transcend or supersede that kind of consequence? The Alter Rebbe said that in order to understand all of this, we would have to understand more about the soul. And so, before speaking about the soul, the Alter Rebbe also frames the notion of creation at large. In the previous lesson, studying the fourth chapter of Tanya, as we now move into part three, the Alter Rebbe had described all of creation in biblical prose as utterances, words proverbially mouthed by God, things God, so to speak, obviously in anthropomorphism, said. God speaks the world into existence. Vayomer Elohim, God says, Yehi or, let there be light. Vayomer Elohim, God says, let there be a firmament. And so all of creation is described in a manner of speech, as speech. Obviously, it's a metaphor. But the Torah does use human language and construct. And we talked about this in great detail in our previous lesson. Here, the Torah isn't simply using poetic expression. The Torah isn't simply employing some verbiage which we'll be able to relate to. But rather, the Torah is trying to convey a very precise and specific message, as in the difference between words spoken and when somebody breathes or blows hard. Because when we hear about the creation of the neshama, the Torah uses the anthropomorphism of blowing, not speaking. God blew a soul of life into the nostrils of that very first human being crafted by God. And so because the neshama, because the soul's creation is described by means of vayipach, of blowing. We talked about this Zoharic concept of man de nofach, the one who blows, blows from deep within. We identified the notion of pnimiut and chitzoniut, the external reality and then the inner essence. A lame metaphor. On your driver's license, it identifies you by virtue of your height, gender, eye color, and weight. And those are true. It really is you. You, you actually fit those descriptions. But is that you? Is that a fair or accurate description of who you really are? Well, the answer is, of course not. I am, I am who I am. I have my own personality. I have my, my own set of values. I have, I have my own life. I'm not simply a collection of bone and plasma, flesh, sinew, and epidermis. I'm a, I'm a person, as are you. And that's the panemius. That's the inner essence of a person. And of course, there can be descriptions about a person that are not simply skin deep. We can talk about a person, whether they're intelligent or not so, sensitive, sapient, insightful, funny, gregarious, methodical. These are all words that can be used, and yet many of those words can be aptly applied to millions of people. 
And so we keep narrowing the definition and description of a human being until we're actually able to describe you. That's panemius. That's the inner essence of who you really are. And so proverbially speaking, there's the exoteric reality of divinity or godliness, and that's called chitzenius, that which is on the outside. The God who brings the universe into existence. The system that was built by God for the notion of a world that is going to be, well, essentially created. And the world utilizes a system. Incidentally, the idea that I'm talking about is spoken of in Torah terminology with the notion of different names for God. Think about it. You know if somebody knows you by the name they use when they're calling you. If they say, hey, Mr. or Mrs., you know they know nothing about you. If you're a doctor or a rabbi and somebody says, hey, doctor or rabbi, they know something about you. Well, at least they know more than your gender. At least they know maybe more than the fact that you're a human being. But then again, lots of rabbis look like rabbis and sometimes doctors can be wearing a white coat and a stethoscope and it's pretty obvious who the doctor in the room is. So that name doesn't really tell us that much about a person. But you know, a name like mom or dad, or maybe the nickname, the affectionate name you have for people that are close to you, or for your spouse, those are the people who really know you. And by the virtue of names used, we can know who's on the line. When I'm sitting down for dinner and I get a phone call, they always call just when you sit down for dinner from somebody who wants to clean my ducts. Hello, Mr. Kaplan. I know they don't know who I am. And I'm like, not a good time now. Have a good evening. They don't even know who they're calling. Clearly, that's what you would call a, a name or a number out of, a, out, of, out, of, out of the telephone book. Although we don't have telephone books anymore, but you know what I mean. You don't, they don't know who you are. So it's a name, it's not, it's not really wrong or inappropriate. I don't get offended when I line up to get onto a plane and they go, Mr. Kaplan, that's fine. They don't know who I am and that's, and that's it, it is a form of, of, of identifying me with. It is a name for me. And then there are people who call me different names and I can, I'll know who it is or at least what kind of person it is by virtue of the name that they use. So all of this is just a metaphor and I'm, I'm trying to talk about the names of God. The names that we use in the Torah for God, they describe God's interaction with creation. We have the notion of Shem Havaya, the ineffable name of God, the one we're not allowed to pronounce, save in the Beit HaMikdash. It's spelled Yud, followed by a He, followed by a Vav, and followed by a He. We mispronounce it purposely as Havaya. And that name, Yud Ke Vav Ke, represents the quiddity or essence of divinity. And then there's the name called Elohim. Elohim, properly pronounced with a He instead of a Kuf, Elohim represents God in the notion that God creates a system to bring the universe into its present reality and existence. It has been noted that the word Elohim has the same gematria, has the same numerical equivalent 
as the word hateva, or the nature. In the modern English word, they call it Mother Nature. So Mother Nature really is a fancy name for God. It's a name that people like to use for the Creator because it doesn't obligate them in any way, shape, or form. If there's a God, He is my Lord. Elohim actually means Lord. So the Lord God means He's my Lord. It means I'm answerable. It means I'm responsible. But I don't want to be answerable responsible. I want to do as I please. Well, how will I describe all this phenomenon that's unfolding? Extraordinary, amazing range of phenomenon. Simple, I call it Mother Nature. It's politically correct. I use a different gender. Everything's great. Mother Nature. Stuff happens. The stuff is choreographed. Still stuff. There isn't a creator. There isn't somebody or something that's calling the shots, bringing me into existence, that has expectations of me. People like that. No strings attached. People like being free. It's great. You can be free. Free of any responsibility. Free of any accomplishment. Free of any achievement. A life that is freed of meaning and filled with emptiness. That's a choice. It's a choice you can make. Or you can choose to live a life that's filled with propriety, with ethos, ethics, morality, spirituality, accomplishment, and achievement. And the thing is that the life of emptiness in the end doesn't actually make people happy because we weren't built by accident to be vacuous, empty creatures. We were built by an amazing creator with a purpose. And the human nature that God gave us is such that unless we fulfill that destiny and purpose, we don't actually feel a sense of inner satisfaction or joy. Our happiness is in our hands. We have to choose that. You must know that it is always going to be the path of greater resistance. Doing nothing is always going to be easier, but in the long run, not more fulfilling and certainly not more rewarding. So God creates nature, a system. The system incorporates things which are much larger than us, things which can boggle our mind and literally tug at the outer reaches of our imagination. Think about not just planet Earth, but the Milky Way galaxy. Think about the cosmos. Think about billions of stars. Think about the entirety, the enormity of creation as we can somewhat fathom it. I think you think about us, small, puny little creatures. And yet, and yet we're being told that the entire cosmos is created through God's speech. But your neshama was created through God's breath. God's, if you will, blowing from inside. That all of that represents chitzonius. All of that represents what's on the surface. A world brought into existence. But you, you represent the core essence of divinity as it unfolds on planet Earth, stuck within the frame of a tiny, tiny human being. And this tiny human being, that is you and I, have the opportunity to make choices of enormous importance, more important than we could possibly imagine. And that's the game called life. 
And it's in our hands. It's in our purview. But it does help for us to put things in perspective. It does help for us to be aware of how important the Torah actually thinks we are. Of how magnificent, how amazing, how wonderful we, you and I, are in Hashem's eyes. We're learning the fourth chapter of Tanya. If you're following along in the original text of Tanya, with its older English translation, that would be on page Tzadik Dalad. In the Hebrew, it's on page 358. In the English, we're on page 357. So, in contrast to the nefesh, to the neshama, which derives from the internal life force, from the flow that issues from the infinitude of God, right? He breathed or blew that soul into our existence. And although the soul has to, if you will, descend through many, many concealing levels, dimensions, and planes until it can actually occupy the body, at its core, the Neshama is Tahora. It's a piece of God. Now, because of this, because of this, we're able to appreciate the enormous distinction, really the infinite gap between angels and between neshamas. And Alter Rebbe talks about this in the middle of the page, moving into the bottom half. He says, because a neshama is something that has the pnimius achayis, the inner life force, the inner essence, the shefa shemashpia ein sev baruchu, of this life elixing animation and flow and force, it comes from the infinite, as we said, Vayipach, etc. Yorda b'seisar hamadreges. It goes through these many, many levels. By assuming the form of letters. You see, the spoken word is comprised of, well, of words. And words are formed out of letters. The letters we speak or the words we use ultimately form a communication. Consider this. Have you ever experienced something very deep, something very, very moving, something very profound, either on an emotional or perhaps a cerebral level, something that left your system shocked and stunned, something that you couldn't really put into words? I'm sure you've had a feeling, an experience like that. And then over time, you manage to articulate or give ear to those feelings. But in the intensity of the moment, you were really overwhelmed by the experience itself. You couldn't communicate. You couldn't talk about it. It could be great joy or, God forbid, great catastrophe or tragedy. But it's something that's enormous, something that's overwhelming. Now, just because I can't speak about it, just because I can't articulate it, doesn't mean I'm not experiencing it. It just means that the experience is touching me to my very core. And that I'm not, I'm not able to fully process it. And ultimately, only after I process it personally, internalize this experience, can I then look for words inside myself so that I can share with you what I might have felt or experienced. At the moment of the intensity, there's a deep part of me that's engaged. 
I wasn't checked out. I was there. I was engaged. I was involved. But it was so intense. It was so powerful, so overwhelming, that it literally sucked every ounce of my energy into this seeming vortex of that experience. And I was entirely transfixed, entirely caught up in the experience. And only later can we step back. Only later can we kind of, after internalizing it, can we look at it almost as, you know, like a, a third person, a third party might. Only then can you begin to appreciate, huh, so what did actually transpire? And that's when I'm not as personally vested. It's when the core essence of my being isn't as caught up. I can almost view it in a dispassionate or objective fashion. The latter is called oiseus. The latter is called characters. Letters are words that can be expressed. And it represents a diminishing of the intensity. It represents a, a stepping back, if you will. The world's existence does not represent the proverbial intensity of the divine creative experience. It represents, obviously, metaphorically speaking, a, a, a dispassionate involvement from God. It's not family. The surgeon, he appreciates and values human life. After all, he or she has chosen a vocation that saves lives. They've actually left a small bit of their own human sensitivity on the table when they approached the surgery table. And they're able to coolly and detachedly cut up a person in order to help save their life. And they do a tremendous, tremendous service. Saving a life is metaphorized as saving the world. And that, that sounds like hyperbole, but it really isn't, but it's not for now. So these are people who save lives, and that's extraordinary. But at the same time, they need to be somewhat detached. You can't cut up a person if you take it too personally. You just can't do that. There needs to be a sense of aloofness. That's why oftentimes medical professionals will not perform surgery on their closest of kin, on people that they care too deeply about because they will say, and rightfully so, I'm too involved. I can't be dispassionate about this. I can't be detached. I can't be cool, aloof, or indifferent. It touches me too deeply. We're called Hashem's children. We're Hashem's family. The entire world is brought into existence by God. The cosmos are created by God, but only the neshama is considered to be Hashem's child. So where is God emotionally engaged, if you will? Where does God really care? What angers God? And what brings joy to God? Anthropomorphism on steroids. But nonetheless, this is the terminology that Torah uses. The answer is us, not nature, us. God delights in us. He cares deeply about every one of us because we're his children. That's the meaning of Shem Havaya. That's the meaning of that we are brought into existence as a representation, an expression of the inner essence of God. Angels, however, albeit 
they're very close to God. Angels are not considered to be the proverbial, if you will, emotionally related to God in that sense. So the angel is connected to the name Elohim. As the Alter Rebbe continues to say now, the human being specifically, although at its origin, at its source, it represents this deep, very, very profound connection to Hashem, but in order for the human being to be, well, a human being living within the frame of nature, so he has to assume Oisius. He has to assume at some point, even though it's very personal, you can begin to talk about it. Sometimes for a human being, it takes time. Sometimes for a human being, you have to cool down. But at some point, you can talk about it. It doesn't mean you don't care. It doesn't mean it's not personal, but you can still, to some degree, be detached. So to some degree, God creates a level of detachment in order to form or create our neshama as it's powering a, a little body of bone, plasma, and sinew. And that little body has to be in a, if you will, really connected to the neshama, because otherwise the neshama would be watching this mannequin dance around and not feel any personal connection to it. The neshama wouldn't say, that's not me, that's, that's you, that's, I don't know, that's like a little toy car and I'm just controlling it. But then the neshama's not there. Then the neshama's not really doing the mitzvahs. The neshama has to actually feel a sense of love for Hashem in the body. The neshama has to feel the sense of awe in the body. The neshama has to feel the enormity of the moment, sometimes the sacrifice, the commitment that it's called upon to make in the bodily reality. And so it has to become distilled into Bechinas Isis. At the end, the human being's neshama is spoken into existence like the rest of creation because there's no other way for it to be a part of creation. There's no other way for it to be seamlessly fused into a body and to actually experience life firsthand. So the neshama has to go through Isis and eventually the human being is also spoken into existence like the rest of creation. As Alter Rebbe says, Shebemimer, this is the divine utterance of Nasa Odom. Let us, proverbially speaking, make the human. V'chulu. And that's all Kedele Hislabesh. The buzzword, the key word here is hislabshut, embodiment. Literally, enclosement. But it's really like an, an embodiment. And a shaman has to experience embodiment. Not being disembodied. Not watching like a third party or seeing something happen to a body. The shaman has to experience it. After a person dies, the soul is still somewhat connected to the bodily reality, but it's no longer life. The soul watches what happens to the body. Eventually, the soul takes leave and, and the, the, the active element, the agent of neshama, the nefesh, which is connected to the body, slowly unravels. And it becomes, if you will, a halo or an atmospheric kind of existence that hovers above the grave, above the human remains, remaining tethered in some way to planet Earth, but not embodied. But of course, when you're dead, you can't do mitzvahs. Bamesim, chofshi, says David Melachin. Psalm 88, once the body and soul have separated, you're free of mitzvahs. You're bereft of opportunities to experience the majesty of a mitzvah here in this world, in this reality. For that is the only way one can truly experience this extraordinary and magnificent thing called a mitzvah. 
And it's all Kadele Hislabish Begof. All of that is done so that it could experience embodiment in Olam Hazahatachtin. And this is the reason, Alter Rebbe says, that Nikru HaMalachim B'Shem Elokim, the Malachim are specifically referred to by the name Elokim. As per the various things I've already spoken about here in this class, the Malach represents that system. And he's called that in the scripture because that actually is what it is. Like it says, Ki Hashem Elokeichem Elokei HaElokim. It says that the Lord, your God, is the God of gods. Now, what does that mean, the God of gods? That actually sounds ridiculous. How could you have a God of gods? There can't be, so to speak, another God. You're absolutely right. There can't be another God. There are no other gods. But nonetheless, we call God, proverbially speaking, the God of gods because, in the end, the name of Elohim is attributed to Malachim. And that's why... In Parshat Ekev, just read by all of us in Shul a couple of weeks ago, in Deuteronomy 10, the language that's used is, Hashem Elokeichem, Hu Elokeichem. The God, your God, that's the God of the angels. And the Alter Rebbe does not suffice with one verse. Instead, he moves on and he says, now quoting from Psalm 136, in the second verse, we say, Let us give praise to the God of gods. And lastly, we have a verse which is found in the very beginning of the book of Job, in which we hear of the B'nai Elohim, the proverbially children of Elohim, not B'nai Havaya. They can't be children of Havaya. They can be called children of Elohim, offspring of Elohim, offspring of a system. They're part of the system. We're not part of the system. They're part of the system. Because these angels who came to stand, Bnei Elohim, Vayavob Bnei Elohim, Lehisyatsev, the angels came to stand before God. And they had lots to say about Job, but that's a story for another day. They cast aspersion on this human being. And the point is, they're only the product of a system. Now, you might well ask, aren't angels far greater than we? You might even bring proof from the scripture that angels exist on a much higher plane from us. You might be familiar with the notion of Joshua meeting an angel outside of Jericho. And what does he do? He prostrates himself because he's, because he's in awe of what he's about to see. You might recall the story of the parents of an extraordinary Jewish hero known as Samson or Shimshon. By the way, the comic and movie X-Men or the Incredible Hulk, <laughs> it comes from Shimshon. He's the inspiration because Shimshon used to shuffle about almost like a cripple and nobody ever suspected was the incredible Shimshon. But this remarkable human being who was given a very, very exceptional mission in life, he was essentially like a, like almost like a real-life superhero sent to defend and save the Jewish people in the time of need. His arrival on planet Earth is presaged with the appearance of an angel who first comes to his mother and then subsequent who comes to his father. 
And when the angel speaks, if you will, to his father, he's entirely blown away by what he sees. In fact, he says, we're going to die. An angel just spoke to us. So the angel is so much more impressive. It's true. The angel really is much more impressive. But at the same time, remember that the angel is part of a system. He's an extraordinary part of that system, but part of a system. Here's a metaphor that will help you appreciate and understand it. And it's based on a medrash. The medrash says on the verse in Shir Hashidim, Yitain chachma mipiv. He gives us wisdom from his mouth. Dat, utfuna, knowledge and understanding. So the medrash says, imagine if you could, a king who made a great ball. And various people came to this ball and they, they, were, they were fed and the king distributed portions, appropriate portions to each one of these very important figures in his government. And there was a little boy at this ball and that little boy didn't get a portion. Instead, he came and sat in the king's lap. And in the Medrash, proverbially speaking, the king gives him from his very mouth. Maybe it means he eats off his plate. Who is closer to the king? The officers, ministers, magistrates, the nobility of the land? That little boy. Yeah, right, you guessed it. That little boy was the prince. That was the king's son. So when the king's child, or the queen's child, is there, they may not look very impressive. They may not have a, a nice CV. They don't have a write-up about their accomplishments and achievements. But they're the prince, the princess. They're the child. The others serve royalty. They are royalty world of difference. That's the metaphor for the neshama. So although the neshama, in order for it to animate the body, in order for it to experience embodiment, has to, in a sense, depart from its purity, from its true existence, to evolve or devolve into the little person that you or I have become, at our origin, at our source. We are actually a child of Hashem. The angel never had to experience any form of devolution, really, because the angel is living in a higher realm to begin with. So he's part of the system in a higher realm. We were once part of that system. We once we went through those worlds, but we passed through and acclimatized in a reverse sense to a lower world and then came to yet a lower world. And in each world, there was a greater distance from the Creator in the sense that in each world, there was less of an awareness of the Creator. Until after nine months of this spiritual gestation that was mirrored by the development of the body that we would occupy, we were finally born. And at the moment of crowning, the neshama is fully embodied in this little corporeal thing, this bag of bones, flesh and sinew. And from that moment onward, the neshama was entirely blinded, made deaf to the truth couldn't see or hear the reality of God's presence anymore. Whilst the angels who don't have embodiment, they don't have those limitations. 
And it's true that the angel does sometimes appear on planet Earth, but it's not in an embodied sense. The angel's checked out. He's like somebody just running a robot. The angel isn't really experiencing this, and that's why it never becomes his name. We have various examples of people asking the angels, what is your name? And they said, I don't have a name. Because a name, a name would mean that this is their identity, but it never really is their identity. It's just, it's just a body they're assuming. It's just, imagine if you will, a, there's a robot and the robot gets animated and activated. And then, and then it's shut off and it isn't. It doesn't experience the joy of birth or the pain of death because it isn't invested and it's never embodied. And as Rabbi Adin Avin Yisrael of blessed memory pointed out in his classes on Tanya, he said, the angel with all of its magnificence, with all of its superlative spiritual glory, so much greater than the little soul it was talking to, even than the great Rabbi Yehoshua, who prostrates himself before the angel. That's true. But at the same time, the angel was sent for who? To serve the human being. To bring him God's messages and to enable him to fulfill the destiny that Hashem had charted out for him. So the great angel was actually in service of the human. And the same is true with the Malach who was tasked with coming to Manoach and informing him that he would have a son, that his wife actually did meet an angel. And this superhero will be a savior for the Jewish people. And it's true, Manoach said, I'm so overwhelmed, I think I'm gonna die. Meaning, I'll experience disembodiment. I don't think I can remain within the realm of a world that denies the presence of God and can't see the obvious when he came face to face with what seemed to be an overexpression of divinity. But remember, that overexpression of divinity was but part of the system. who had been sent to speak to a member of the royal family. That little kid in the soiled diapers who's being taken care of by the most prominent prince or princess, or shall we say, member of nobility who's taking care of the royal family, that's the greatest thing they can do. They may be a very impressive person. Now they've been given a mission. Watch my children. Take care of my baby, said the king or queen. You tell me who's greater. So this is the neshama. The question, of course, is, all right, on a practical level, what does that mean? If realistically speaking, the neshama is living in a very, very lowly kind of reality, and the malach lives in an exalted kind of reality, what does it mean when we say that the neshama is loftier or greater? That's a good question. And that's what we're going to come and to try to answer. That's what the Alter Rebbe will set out to explain. But before we go further, I just I would like to point out for a moment that there are even levels within the Malachim, even levels within the angels themselves. And the levels within the angels are in accordance with the different levels of spiritual worlds. Because each spiritual world is a reflection of greater distance or greater darkness. Less awareness where the presence of God isn't the overwhelming reality. In our world, the lights are off entirely. 
That's why we have freedom of choice. That's how we can actually manufacture righteousness. In the higher worlds, that's not the case. The reason it's not the case is because there is a glimmer or perhaps even illumination, but it's not overwhelming. I've used this metaphor many times before, and I think it works. When you have a picture that's being sent onto a screen, whether it's being beamed onto a screen as they used to have with old-fashioned projectors, or it's a plasma screen, the darker it is, the clearer the picture will be. Movie theaters are dark places. When you open windows or turn the lights on, you can still see the picture, but it's vastly dimmed. It's not as vivid anymore. Eventually, if you shined a spotlight on that very screen, you'd see absolutely nothing. Well, our world of darkness is, if you will, struck with enormous amounts of light, lights that actually blind us. The brightest place in the world is this earth, and it's the place we can't see anything because it's the only place where the essence of God itself is reflected. And because that essence of God is reflected or it is possible to connect to the deepest essence of God only by performing a mitzvah or studying Torah here on earth, we're blinded by that light. We don't see anything. The darker it gets, the more we can see. In the same way, in the highest or loftiest of spiritual worlds, they don't see themselves. They can't feel independent. Because, because although the picture exists theoretically, practically, all they see is the light of God. And then it gets darker. And as the atmosphere begins to darkle, suddenly a picture begins to emerge, but the picture is kind of washed out because the light is still glowing. But as it continues to fade, and as darkness gets more and more intense, eventually the picture becomes very clear. And that's the mirror image of what happens in this world. On one hand, we're blinded by the possibilities of magnificent mitzvahs available only here in this world. On the other hand, we have so much darkness that we actually feel as if we're God. We feel we are the masters of our own destiny. We feel that we should serve ourselves. We feel that if there's a God, he must be created in my image. In ancient times, that meant mythology or creating gods who have feelings and foibles, gods who are jealous and angry, who eat and sleep, who make love and war, along with a whole ridiculous pantheon of different divine figures that populate the imagination of the ancients' mythology. In today's day and age, nobody actually presents a picture of a god, if you will. That's, that's too religious. But instead, they project their own ideals, their own values, their own likes and dislikes as sacred. If it makes sense to me, it must be divine. The things that resonate with our society, that's really what godliness and goodliness is about. We need to tailor the Torah, which comes from God. But then again, what does God know? We're going to engineer the Torah, remove all of its toxins. We're going to get rid of all of its imperfections so that we can engineer the Torah and God to be a reflection of what we believe to be the truth. Does that sound ridiculous? It's exactly what Western civilization is about today. 
precisely what it's about today. A mockery of all that is good and holy and embracing all that is, well, human. We embrace humanity. We embrace our vision, our perspective, thinking that we're much smarter than God. So back to the angels. The Alter Rebbe tellingly uses three different verses to describe the devolution of the angelic creatures. In the first verse, the first that is quoted by the Alter Rebbe, we hear about Malachim called B'Shem Elohim. In what way? God is the God of gods. God is Elokei Elohim. God is the builder, if you will, creator of that system, that divine system. So we're talking about divine creatures. And the Rebbe points out that we, the Jewish people, we represent Yisrael Olu B'Machshava. We represent the idea that God, when He first, proverbially speaking, envisioned or thought of a world, we were the first thing that came to mind. So Machshava is a representation, a metaphor for the deepest part of God. We have thought, which is pretty close to who we are, although I can change my thoughts. I can think happy thoughts are the opposite. So it's not really who I am, but it's very close to who I am. And then there's the words I use, and the words I use are reflective of me. We each choose specific words to express the very same ideas because words come from a very deep place. But at the same time, words are used to convey things that are outside of us, to entities or people who aren't us. And then lastly, there's the notion of action. And action is entirely divorced from us as an individual. Now, the Rebbe says the first level is called Bria, creation. Something exists. It doesn't have a specific system or form in place yet. Just like a thought that can be raw. Somebody will say like, it's just a thought I have. It's just, it hasn't really been developed or articulated yet. That's the first level of Malachim, and they're still pretty close to what a neshama seems to be. And so they represent the idea of machshava. Hashem elekechem, the Pasuk, the verse says, the Lord, your God, is elekechem. When you relate to God as the creator of nature, when you understand God as the one who brings you into existence, you can understand the malachim as having a portion, having a part, participating in that system. The next that Rebbe says is the notion of b'nei ho'elikim. So here, we're no longer saying it's not Hashem elikechem, it's not your God, it's not personal in that same sense anymore. We don't relate to it anymore. It's is more like the notion of the concept of articulation. So this is the idea. There's no mention of your God. It's just Elikeho Elikim, the creator of the system. Not your God. And that represents the Malachim of the world of Yitzira, where Malachim begin to take on in particular forms. And because the different forms begin to observe the, the life forms that become pronounced and obvious are indicative of a darkening or removal of the blinding or overwhelming reality of God's presence. That represents the world of Yitzhira. And finally, we come to the third verse that speaks about B'nai Elikim, the proverbial children or offspring of God. And this represents the idea of angels sent really on a mission, almost to scour the earth. And so here the angels are very much a part of a limited system. 
albeit with much more ability than you or I have. They aren't really stuck or, cha or chained to time and place, but at the same time very much stuck to a system and a particular mission that they've been given. And the question, of course, is, so this essence of who we are, because it isn't who I am or who you are on a conscious level, what difference does it make? What's the difference if I have a lofty source? Realistically, I'm lower than the angels. Realistically, just a small little person filled with jealousies and anger and lusts and cravings, fears and insecurities, slothfulness and lethargy. Just a little person. Just a selfish little creature. That's how we were born. We are born a selfish little bag of bones that wailed and cried and demanded that everybody stand hand and foot and wait on us. And we got a little older and we realized that's not polite and it's not going to earn us many friends. So we learned to mask and hide our selfishness. And maybe we even nurtured and developed a little bit of selflessness. But we're such small creatures. We're <laughs> so pathetic. And you're telling me stories about how magnificent and titanic we are? Give me a break. What does this really mean? The ineffable name of God, which is the neshama of a person, the neshama, the malachim is the just the external reality. The neshama is the pnimius, the neshama is the inner track, the inner essence. The Shem Havaya is made al pnimius achayas. The Shem Havaya is indicative of the inner essence of vitality or life, the life force that is, or the vivifying force that is essentially a part of that tetragram of the Shem Havaya, of the ineffable name of God. It's Lamaila Maila Mabhinas Isis. Our origin, our source is far beyond the articulated or expressed reality of who we are now. Okay. But that's not really me or you. Or is it? The next two words are very important. Ubir Hainyan. To better understand this concept. Which concept? To better understand the notion that even as we exist within the frame of our own small minutia, we are still a reflection of something great and glorious. We're still an expression of something that is not only everlasting, but truly extraordinary. Even as we exist in the present reality, even with our personalities, even with our failings and foibles, we are still a representation of the essence of God in a way that nothing else is. How? What does that even mean? It's good you asked, because the Alter Rebbe is now going to explain it to us. The explanation of all of this will be based on a passage which is found in what's called Tikkune Zohar. Tikkune Zohar is a portion of the Zoharic book, and here there are quotations from the teachings of Eliyahu Hanavi. 
Kenoida, as it's known, Mimaimer Eliyahu, from the doctrine, rumination or teaching of Eliyahu, who said, and I quote, Anthu the Apikat Asar Tikunim. You are he who elicited or drew forth what is called ten tikunim. I'm not even going to try to translate tikunim. You are he who elicited, you are he who brought forth these ten tikunim. Vikarinan lahain, and you called them sfirot. And these sfirot were called forth or brought into existence to drive or conduct worlds, almen steaming, concealed worlds. And with this we turn the page. From Tzadik Dalet onto side 2, or page 188. So onto you are the one who brings forth these, this reality of these tikkunim. You are the one, you, you, the essence of divinity we refer to here. Are the one who calls forth or creates or brings these ten spherot, which will be the driver of worlds, which will be through which worlds are conducted. The Alter Rebbe goes on to quote the Chulu, etc. Ant Chakim, you are wise. Not by what we call wisdom or known wisdom. And Maven, you understand. But not with what we call understanding. This is very deep. It's very, very deep what we just, what we just read. It's, it's so deep. It, it almost eludes you. First, did you realize that the Alter Rebbe just spent so much time telling us that the essence of God is beyond articulation. It's beyond definition, beyond description. It doesn't get, if you will, distilled into something like speech. That's Elohim. That's the external reality of divinity. That's the, the nature power of divinity. But the, the essential miraculous, transcendent essence of divinity, it doesn't express itself. It doesn't have particulars. Like a very deep sentiment that you might have that you can't express yourself. Your reaction is to weep or laugh uncontrollably. You can't even contain the intensity of the experience because it's so overwhelming and so shocking to your system. And here the Alter Rebbe says, the apikas asarti kunim. Ant, you, like Anaychi, Ant, you are the one, the apikas who brings forth these ten tikunim. You are the one who's karinan, who calls them ten spherot. And the purpose is anhoga. You're conducting or driving worlds. Is that not an articulation? The Rebbe says in his notations on Tanya that that is precisely the point of why the Alter Rebbe adds the next three words. Yes, there is a system. Yes, there is something happening, but it's all beneath the surface. The subconsciousness is an entity, but an entity that cannot be described by terminology that we know. 
it can't really be plumbed. It's a subconsciousness or pre-consciousness. Now, we are created in God's image. So if we have subconsciousness or pre-consciousness in the divine, that would mean a level of reality, worlds which are steaming, which are entirely hidden. Just like you don't even know what your subconsciousness is. But we're using words. Yeah, we are using words, but they don't really reflect the truth of the ideas they're conveying. They can't. They can't because and chakim, you're wise, but What does it mean you're wise, but not with known wisdom? Well, think of it, my friends. Do you know anybody who's wise? Are you a wise person? Do you get wiser? If you're really a wise person, you're always getting wiser because you're constantly learning new things. You're learning from others. You're learning from experiences. You're learning from mistakes. And you get better and better at this game called life. Many a wise person has commented that life could best be lived backwards, having amassed all the knowledge of our experiences, but can only be lived forward. So wisdom is the sum total of life lived, lessons learned, ideas developed and articulated, things appreciated. Oftentimes we view things in a particular fashion when we are children and we view the same things very differently when we are adolescents. And by the time we're in our early 20s, we don't see it in the same way. Although it's the same experience. And this continues decade after decade until in old age, a person has a very different perspective on this. I remember many, many years ago in seventh grade when we were just starting to focus on creative writing, there was a story. It's not a nice story. A story of a, a young lady who was uh, compromised by a faith leader. And <laughs> she writes the story in three voices, in the voice of has she experienced that uncomfortable event, which nothing terrible happened, but very uncomfortable situation. And then she writes it from the perspective as a mature woman, maybe in her 40s. And then she writes it again as she viewed it as an older, wiser woman. And none of this is untrue. It's just three very, very different perspectives on the same exact story. And even though I was, I was very young, you don't have to be a genius to appreciate the fact that people can see things differently. Their own experiences, it's not something read in a book, their own experience will be experienced differently, will be viewed, seen, and understood differently. It's probably a famous piece of literature, I don't remember what it's called. The point I'm trying to make is that wisdom is necessarily the sum total of the things we've absorbed. In simple words, acquisition of wisdom and the vicissitudes of time are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they're really one and the same. The past, the present, and the future. I didn't know that. Wow, really? I really appreciate you letting me know. 
now that I know what I know, I view things differently. I will look at things differently armed with this information. The first scene I didn't know. I was learning this information. Once I learned the information, I became a different person. The information essentially plays itself out over the panorama of time, along the dynamic experience of getting that information. It could be something you experience. It could be a maturity or a sense of just perspective. It could maybe not be a particular piece of information, but just the conglomeration of so many pieces that are coming together at such force and at such speed that you don't even realize how a new picture is emerging. Tens of thousands of electrons coming at you, little pieces of information as you continue to mature and grow. And then years after years have gone by, it's a, it's a different electromagnet. You've, you've become a totally different person formed and shaped by the many, many things you've learned and experienced over time. Wisdom is necessarily framed within a lack of knowledge, an acquisition of knowledge, and what will happen as a result because of the knowledge being acquired now, past, present, and future. Now please, if you will, take just a moment and ask yourself a simple question. Can any of that apply to God? How could it? God grew up. He was immature, then he got smarter. He learned of something? That's heresy. Essentially, to say that God is wise is not really that different than ascribing a body part to God. And we, the Jewish people, reject all of that anthropomorphical idea entirely, save as a metaphor. Chas v'sholem, to ascribe any corporeality to God. We cannot fathom the meaning of God. Heaven forfend to say that God has a corporeal body, that God is embodied. That, that means leaving the building from a Jewish perspective. You have left the building of faith and religion. You are no longer now worshiping God. You have created a Godhead or an idol. It's not God. God can't have a body. God can't have any specific limitation. It's impossible to say that. So, Ant Chakim, yes, you are indeed wise. What does that mean? Not with what we call wisdom. Ant Maven, you are understanding. But not with what we call understanding. Because the notion of our understanding is a finite, limited human thing. It is true. The scripture uses words like Yad Hashem, the hand of God, Etzba Elikim, the finger of the Lord. The scripture uses terminology like the anger of God, God being happy, sad. The scripture does use these kinds of expressions. But as Rambam, as Maimonides tells us in the laws of the foundations, of our Torah perspective, Yesodeh HaTorah, Rambam says that all of that is a metaphor. The Torah employs anthropomorphism because it's talking to us. It needs to give us some kind of language we should be able to relate to as we talked about in our previous class. 
The point is that God has ten spherot, but the ten spherot which represent which represent the range of intellectual and emotional capacity are not to be taken literally. But they are, so to speak, distilled into what's called a human persona. V'chol hayud sviris, all these ten sviris, nichlolois v'nirmozois b'shem havaya baruchu. They're all alluded to in that ineffable name of God. So if you will, on some level, if you want to define God, you define God with these ten spheres. Because as we said, Ant, you brought forth these ten tikunim. You brought forth these ten spheres. You brought them forth. Where did you bring them forth from? Godliness contained this. So it now comes forth from God. So it's an expression of God, but it's an almond steaman. It's not articulated. It's still essential. It's a piece of God, so to speak. It's all hidden. It's in the subconsciousness, because in the subconsciousness, there is intellectual activity and there is emotional activity. We can feel very strongly about something subconsciously. We can be biased or tilted in a certain direction subconsciously. We can even, we can even have the germination of creativity or an understanding subconsciously. It just hasn't filtered through to our consciousness yet. That's like the pre-conscious level of divinity, proverbially speaking, obviously employing metaphors. That's represented by the name Yud Kevavke. Ki Yud, who beginas nakuda, Yud is but a dot. That's the nature of Yud, if you know what the Hebrew alphabet looks like. It's miramezas l'chachmasa yizbarech. It represents the wisdom, the creativity, if you will, of God. Now, obviously, it can't be wisdom as you and I have wisdom, and it can't be creativity as you and I have creativity, because that necessarily requires a time I didn't know, or an epiphany, a flash of awareness, whether it was a new idea, an invention, a, a successful strategy, or, ah, that's what you meant. Now I get it. So I didn't get it before. But God can't get it, because to get it means there was a time he didn't get it. God can't learn of something or, whoo, I have an idea, because that means the idea wasn't there before. So obviously it's just a metaphor, but there is this idea that there is chachma by God. And that's represented by the Yud. Shubachinas Helen, the Hester. When the idea first comes, even though it's a flash, it's still very much concealed. It's It hasn't been developed and articulated. In fact, when we have ideas, we don't really understand them yet. I said, I have an idea, but I don't know what it is yet. You don't know it. What, what do you, how could you have it? Well, it's just an idea. It's, just a, it's a flash of inspiration. It's like, I, I, I got it. What did you get? I'm not sure yet. Let me think about that. Let me develop it. So the Yud represents that initial flash. And then the development in which something is given its breadth and its length that's called Bina, from the Hebrew terminology Bona, to build, develop the idea. That's when it goes from a level of almost pre-consciousness, epiphany moment, it goes into a cogent understanding. It's developed or distilled into something I actually get or grasp. I grasp it so well, I can even explain it to you now. Yeah, because I need to understand it first, and after I understand it, then it's something that can be shared. So that repre that's represented by the hay, because the hay has a certain length, a width, it's developed. You take that little dot when you write in the Sefer Torah, you put that quill, that feather, with a little bit of ink to parchment, 
And it starts off like a yud. It always, every letter starts like a yud. A drop. A moment of impact when the quill hits the parchment and the ink rolls very, very gently from the quill onto parchment. You have a dot, but then when you're drawing a hay, you take that and you widen it. It's called hispashta. It's called development. And then you bring it down. You bring it down on the right because that's creating the side of the hay. And then you lift the quill off and actually create another line of scrimmage opposite, separated from the original idea. That's real development. When you're not just continuing, but you actually lift the quill off and you're able now to create another, an outside parameter. You've created the outlines of a full square. You've actually drawn out an idea. Even though not all of it's drawn out, you've created two sides and a dot. And that dot can become the point of connection. It can complete the picture. That's to develop the idea. That's the notion of Yud, and that's the notion of the hey. Do you see where we're going? The Yud Kevavke, the Alter Rebbe is going to explain, explains the process of the Eser Sfirot, of the ten spheres. The ten Sfirot are the essential. We're really out of time, unfortunately. We're just beginning to map out the spiritual genome. But the point that is going to be made is only human beings have the full range or gamut of this divine experience. Only we can have intellect and emotion. Only we can function. Only we can take responsibility. Angels can't do that. Celestial creatures can't do that. It's all beyond them. We are the true expression of divinity because even though we become very, very small, little embodied souls, we still maintain that exquisite divine symmetry, system, and structure. With Hashem's help, I'll be back next week to further explain, develop, and articulate this mind-blowing concept, the DNA of the Neshama, and how, although we are now very small little creatures living in a dark world, we become the true representatives of godliness and divinity. Please be sure to join me next week as we continue. Thank you.